0: And for all of your beautiful singing congregation, we're thankful for that. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to pause in our study of Titus this morning. I don't know if that's a cause of rejoicing or sadness for you, but either way, we're going to pause our study of Titus, and we're going to look uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians, because I believe it's important, even as God in His providence has allowed us to pause observing the Lord's Supper, For these last many months, even as we began observing the Lord's Supper again today, it's important for us uh, to be reminded of its significance. I know for most of you, if you've been in church for any length of time, you're familiar with the Lord's Supper, uh, but yet it's always good for us to revisit that issue and to see what does it actually mean? Why does it matter? So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at the Lord's Supper. Uh, You may have heard it called different things, it's called multiple things, even in the Bible, it's called the breaking of bread. It's called communion, it's called the Eucharist, it's called the Lord's table. All of those things are biblical, scriptural words. We don't use all of those often for various reasons. We usually just call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, but we're going to see all of those words as they pop up throughout the scriptures. And so this morning, we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, from verses thir- uh, starting in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. So if you're able, whether in body or in spirit, would you stand for the reading of God's word? First Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. And the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us this memorial feast, that we can celebrate your sacrifice. Lord, I pray now that your word would convict us where we need convicting, that your word would comfort us where we need comfort, that we would set aside all distractions and that we would focus on your word. And by your spirit, we trust that we will be able to understand it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord's Supper, a meaningful memorial. Now, there's lots of questions about the Lord's Supper, more questions than I could begin to answer in this short amount of time this morning. How often should we observe the Lord's Supper? Who should come to the Lord's Supper? What about all these differences between different denominations? Why do they do things differently than we do? There's all sorts of things through, throughout church history that have been debated and discussed about the Lord's Supper. And we could not begin to exhaust all of your questions about the Lord's Supper this morning. But I hope we will be able to answer a few of them. Uh, the way I'm going to go through this, we're not going to be able to look at every single phrase in the passage. But I want to answer a few questions. The first simply being, does it matter? Does it matter how we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And if it does matter, then what do we do about it? Put it another way, does God care how we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And if he does, then what does he want us to do? These are important questions for us to ask. We're going to go through the text a little bit out of order. It's a a different type of sermon that we have this morning. But as we begin to think about the Lord's Supper, a meaningful memorial, we just begin here in verse 17. We set the context because we recognize that this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth. If you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul had spent many years laboring in Corinth. He had worked with the church at Corinth, and even now, after he had moved on, he continued correspondence with the church at Corinth. We have two letters in our Bible addressed to the church at Corinth. But when we read those letters carefully, we recognize that there were other letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth that God in his wisdom said the church doesn't need that for all the ages. Sometimes there are things that the apostles said that were only for that day and time. But what we have here in First and Second Corinthians are the letters that God did want preserved throughout the ages for our benefit And Paul was addressing different questions that they had about how they worshiped and about divisions they had and all these sorts of things, as you're familiar with if you've looked at the book of 1 Corinthians recently. But as we begin in verse 17, he says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now, earlier in chapter 11, he had addressed a question, and he said, I do commend you for this. He said, uh, you have properly maintained the tradition that we have given you. They had maintained the tradition. Now when we hear that, we often think of tradition as something bad. We want to get away from tradition. We just want to do what the Bible says. But Paul was telling them that they needed to be passing down God's truth throughout the generations. The word that we see there at the beginning of chapter 11 is actually where we get our word for catechism. Now, you may say, wait a minute now, preacher, that's a Catholic thing. We don't do that. Baptists don't do catechisms. But actually, that's a very historic thing that Baptists have done and all denominations have done to teach their children God's truth in very short snippets a catechism for adults and for children. It's a wonderful thing to do. And Paul is telling them at the beginning of the chapter, you've done a good job of maintaining the tradition. But when he comes here to verse 17, he says, in these things I can't commend you. When it comes to the Lord's Supper... They were messing it up so bad that he didn't have anything good to say about what they were doing. He says, because when you come together, I'm just going to pause on that phrase. Did you notice how that phrase pops up at least five times as we read these verses? When you come together, when you come together, when you come together. This isn't the only place that we're taught the answer to one of our questions, but it's very clear in this passage that the Lord's Supper is given to the local church. It's not an ordinance that's just given to all Christians to celebrate in any way that they want to. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, The Lord's Supper is given to the church locally, corporately. So we observe the Lord's Supper as a church. We don't observe the Lord's Supper in our Sunday school classes. We're not going to observe the Lord's Supper in our deacons meeting Tuesday night. We're not going to observe the Lord's Supper when we gather for a wedding or for a birthday party or in any other fashion. The Lord's Supper is given to the local church. We see that over and over when he says, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. But here's what the verdict that God gives to them when they come together for the Lord's Supper. He says, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Can you imagine if that was God's verdict on our worship service today? That if God said to us, when we leave today, that we're leaving for the worse, not for the better. What a tragedy that would be. And yet the church at Corinth had so misunderstood, they had so warped their understanding of the Lord's Supper, that God says, when you leave, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, as a church, again, that idea that we're to observe the Lord's Supper corporately, But that word church also reminds us of the unity of the church. Remember, we saw that when we looked at our three priorities at the beginning of of the year. We saw that the church is to have a great unity in it. We're united because we're either in Christ or we're out of Christ. And as believers, we are all in Christ. And we have a unity, a fellowship that comes because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so even as they should be coming together in unity, watch what he says. I hear that there are divisions among you, divisions, the opposite of unity. When you look at the letter of First Corinthians, you remember that the first three or four chapters are all about divisions. They were divided about all sorts of things. They were divided about personalities, and they were divided over doctrines like the Lord's Supper. They were a divided church, which doesn't reflect well on the unity that we should have when we come to the Lord's table. Not only that, look at verse 20. He says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now, they thought they were observing the Lord's Supper. That was their plan. If they had had a bulletin to pass out before the service, it would have been marked on there clearly, We're here to observe the Lord's Supper. And yet, again, God, through the Apostle Paul, says, That's not what you're doing. They had messed it up so badly that whatever they were doing, it wasn't what they intended. Whatever they were actually doing, it was not the Lord's Supper. So, what are they doing? Verse 21 For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. During that time, in the early church, they often celebrated an entire meal which culminated in the breaking of bread, the language we see from Acts chapter 2. They would have an entire fellowship meal that would climax in the Lord's Supper. And what was happening in Corinth was that the rich people would come and they would feast. And those who didn't have as much money, they went without. And some were even drinking and eating to excess that Paul says some of you are even getting drunk. No matter what your stance is on wine at the Lord's table, whatever they had in the first century, if they were drinking enough of it that they were getting drunk off of it, they certainly were not observing the Lord's Supper. They were far too focused on meeting their own needs of, of Gorging on the food and the drink there available, the rich were, and they were depriving those who had less resources. But they were all part of the same church. They should be reflecting the unity when they come together at the Lord's table, but they were not. And that's why Paul says, "Whatever you're doing, it's not the Lord's supper." He says, "Do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Do you hate God's church so much?" Are you willing to shame God's church so much that you're just going to put your own selfish desires above the unity of the Lord's table? He closes that paragraph by asking, what shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, normally, Paul asks all sorts of hypothetical questions in the letter of 1 Corinthians. He'll ask a question and he'll just leave it hanging there letting you fill in the answer. It's very obvious, the answer, but he, he just leaves it lingering in the air for them to meditate on it, to think about it. But here, he leaves no room for doubt. He is very clear. Will I commend you in this? No, I will not. They had clearly messed up the Lord's Supper. So what were they doing wrong? When we come to the Lord's table, we're supposed to be acting out the gospel. God has given his church two ordinances, two rituals that we go through. And both of those baptism and the Lord's Supper act out the gospel. And that's what they were supposed to be doing when they came to the Lord's table, but they weren't actually living out the gospel. They were supposed to be acting out the gospel at the Lord's table, but they weren't living it out because they were fighting amongst one another. They were divided. They were selfish with one another, and they weren't actually coming together as one body at the Lord's table. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Paul had already referenced this in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, when he said the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship, a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation, a communion, a fellowship, and the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. For all who partake of the one bread. For we are all partake of the one bread. Even as we get ready in a little bit to pass out the elements, and we're each going to have our individual cups, As a symbolic gesture, we're pointing to the picture of what we're supposed to be doing. We have one loaf of bread that I will break for us. And we have uh, communion cups that were actually historically used by the church many years ago to symbolize the pouring of God's blood out for us. Now, just so you know, in that day and time, the men would drink from one cup and the women would drink from the other cup and neither the twain shall meet. But you don't have to worry about that today. Everybody's got their own cup. But churches have historically thought very carefully about how to do this, of how to keep the picture, how to help us understand what we're doing at the Lord's table. But the church at Corinth misunderstood, and they were not doing that. So what's Paul's solution to that? Well, he tells them the truth. In verses 22 through 26. And those are the familiar verses that we think of when we come to the Lord's Supper. And we're going to save those for just a minute. I want to keep moving down and and keep answering this question. Does God care how we observe the Lord's Supper? Is it a serious matter when we observe the Lord's Supper? Verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Notice that little word, manner. That's critically important because Christians have often misunderstood this idea. They say, well, I'm unworthy. I can't come to the Lord's table. But it's not a question of, are you unworthy? Because apart from Christ, we are all unworthy. Apart from Christ, none of us can come to the Lord's table. The only reason we can gather at Christ's table is because Christ invites us to come. So it's not a question of, Are you unworthy apart from Christ? You absolutely are unworthy. But in Christ, Christ invites you to the table. The question is, in what manner are you approaching the Lord's table? That was the problem with the church at Corinth. They were approaching in an unworthy manner. They were taking the picture that's supposed to be represented at the Lord's table, and they were just shredding it to pieces. There was supposed to be unity on display. There was supposed to be sacrifice on display, selflessness on display. And they were taking that and they were distorting that. So what was the result of that? Verse 30 says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. We don't like that verse. We don't like to think about that verse very often. That seems to be different than our picture of God. And I just want to pause and make very clear that he's saying that people in the church at Corinth were weak and ill, and some even died because they approached the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Not because they had failed to observe the Lord's Supper. Not because there had been a a series of months because of God's providence that they weren't able to celebrate the Lord's table. So even as it's been many months since we've been able to celebrate, and even as we've had loved ones in the church go on to be with the Lord in that time, I want to make very clear it's not a result of what he's talking about in that verse. I don't want there to be any miscommunication, misunderstanding about that. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that the church at Corinth had taken the holy things of God and they had treated it casually. They were taking the holy things of God and treating it casually. It's very easy to do that in our Christian life. It's so easy for us to get used to church and to get used to the Bible and get used to all the things that God does and we just take it for granted. Yes, we can boldly approach the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for us, but we can never forget that God is a holy God and he should always be approached in reverence, recognizing that he is holy. Just ask Nadab and Abihu, Those of you who are going through our five-day Bible narrative reading plan, what did you read on Friday? Leviticus chapter 10, the story of Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron. You can't get much better than that. Your father is the very first priest of Israel. You had a good upbringing. And it's not that Nadab and Abihu went and worshiped a false god. What does the Bible say? They offered a strange fire on the altar of the Lord. They offered a strange fire. They, they took what God had called holy and they treated it casually. And they paid for it with their lives. And that's not a one-off incident in the Bible. When you get to Joshua chapter 7 and you see the story of Achan. You remember Achan? After they went around the city of Jericho and God had gone before them. And in a miraculous way, the walls just came tumbling down. But God told Israel, he said, Jericho is to be set aside for me. Jericho is the first fruits of all the victories that you will win as I go before you and as I fight the battles on your behalf. But Jericho is set aside. Don't touch anything. Don't take loot from Jericho. You'll get it later from other cities, but not from Jericho. But Achan took casually what God had called holy. Achan said, well, God owns everything. Surely he's not going to miss just this little bit. And Achan takes a little bit of gold and a little bit of stuff, and he hides it away under his tent. And Achan and his entire family paid the consequences for Achan's sin. They died before the Lord because of what they had done. Again, this is not an isolated incident. When you look at 2 Samuel chapter 6, ask Uzzah what he thinks about the holiness of God. You remember Uzzah? He's the one that just reached up to steady the Ark of the Covenant. You would say, that's a good thing to do. Well, you don't want the Ark of the Covenant to fall and hit the ground. But God had given them instructions. He said the Ark of the Covenant is not to be carried on an ox cart. It's supposed to be carried with poles going through the rings. And you're supposed to be walking on the ground holding it. And Uzzah reaches up to steady the Ark. And when he touches the Ark of God, he dies right then. Because Uzzah took casually what God had declared holy. As one writer said it, Uzzah's problem was that he thought his hands, his sinful hands, were cleaner Than the dirt of the earth. God is holy, and he must be approached in holiness. You say, Pastor, that's just an old testament thing. Don't we believe that God is so serious in the Old Testament, He's more loving in the New Testament? Absolutely not. God's love and mercy is on display in the Old Testament just as much as his judgment and justice is on display in the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a holy God. Yes, we can approach God because of what Christ has done on our behalf, but we never should take casually. We should never take for granted what God has done for us and who God is. This is not just an Old Testament teaching. We see it in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? They had some land and they sold it and they brought some of the money to the church. Now, it's not that God told them you have to bring all of your money, but they said they did. They lied about it. They lied to God. They lied to God's Holy Spirit. They lied to Peter. They lied to the church. And they both died because of their lies. because they took the holy things of God and they treated it casually. And when we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we see this here, even at the Lord's Supper. It is so serious. God has declared it to be holy. But the people at Corinth were treating it casually. Brothers and sisters, we must never treat casually what God has called holy. He says, this is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have even died. Now, don't misunderstand. This is a divine mercy. You say, how do you figure? How is it a mercy that God was taking people to eternity sooner than they would have if they had not treated the holy things of God casually? Do you remember Hebrews chapter 11 or chapter 12, verse 6, where it says that God chastens those whom he loves? He chastens those whom he loves. That's something we try to teach our children, and they don't necessarily enjoy that teaching. Sometimes they feel like they wish that we didn't love them so much. But God chastens those whom he loves. These were believers in the church. These aren't unbelievers that are receiving this judgment. These are believers who had taken the holy things of God and were treating them casually, and God in his mercy takes them to their death sooner than they would have. Now again, to be clear, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to make you start thinking about any one person in particular and think, I wonder if they mistreated the Lord's Supper. What I'm trying to help us understand, to be reminded that we serve a holy God and we must treat him accordingly. Does God care about the Lord's Supper? Yes. Does he care about baptism? Yes. Does he care about how we worship him? Yes. God is a holy God and he has given us all we need to know about how we worship him through his word. So what is the remedy? What do we do about it? We look at the answer that Paul gave the church at Corinth. It's the same answer that Christians have been relying on for 2000 years. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, the night that he was betrayed, Jesus willingly gave himself over to the authorities. Jesus knew what was going to happen when he surrendered to those soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew that he was the one who would give his life over, even as he told the authorities, you cannot take my life unless I willingly lay it down. On the night Jesus betrayed, we see the sacrifice of what Christ is doing for our behalf, the selflessness, how much Christ was serving us and what a contrast that is with what the church was doing in Corinth, how selfish they were being. How they were only caring about themselves, but the Lord's Supper is supposed to be reflecting back on Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, there's that word, the Eucharist. The Greek word is eucharisteo, and that's why some traditions call the Lord's table the Eucharist. There's nothing wrong biblically with what it is, but we usually don't want to say that because we don't want to associate ourselves with some of the other things that they get wrong. But there's that word, the Eucharist. On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body. Those four little words, this is my body, have caused all sorts of fighting throughout church history. What does Jesus mean when he says this is is my body does he mean that somehow at some magic moment that his the bread turns into his flesh at the lord's table when the priest says the magic words in latin well, that's what some people think that's what the roman catholic church teaches but that's not what we believe and that's not what many christian groups believe that we recognize that if somehow magically the bread became Christ's actual flesh when we were partaking of the Lord's Supper, that we would be sacrificing Christ over and over again. But the book of Hebrews is very clear that once and for all, Christ died for us. He gave the ultimate sacrifice that never needs to be duplicated ever again. We understand just from common English that when he says, this is my body, that he's speaking metaphorically. Because there are many times that Jesus uses a metaphor speaking about himself. He says in the book of John that I am the door, and I am the vine, and I am the light. Now, somehow, we don't get mixed up when we read those things. We understand that he's speaking metaphorically. But when we come to the Lord's table, somehow, some people think that the bread magically becomes his body. But that's not at all what is happening. This is a metaphor. This is a symbol. He says, this is my body which is for you, which is for you. We have to emphasize over and over and over that Christ died a penal substitutionary death. I know those sound like big words, but they are important words. Penal, that he took a punishment in our behalf, that we deserve punishment for our sins. We absolutely stand condemned before a holy God. But Christ took our punishment on our behalf. He substituted himself for us. This is my body, which is for you. Christ is our substitute. So therefore, we do this in remembrance of him. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper. What is the supper that he was referring to? It was Passover. They were celebrating Passover, that same passage that we read in the beginning of our service, Exodus chapter 12. That even as we've been reading through Exodus and our Bible reading plan, we recognize that all of the book of Exodus is pointing forward to what Christ does on our behalf. Even as he passed over and he spared them physically in Egypt, Christ has passed over us and spared us spiritually in our lives. He has spared us. He has saved us because of his blood. He says, this, where are we at? Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this is what he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. This points us back to Jeremiah chapter 31 when God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. They had been trying to keep the law in and of themselves and they failed. But God says, I will write the law on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Don't miss this, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. What are we celebrating at the Lord's Supper? We're celebrating that Christ has forgiven our sins by his blood. Some people don't want to talk about the blood of Christ. They they don't want to talk about a, a bloody religion. But yet this has been God's plan from the very beginning, even as we saw in the Garden of Eden that God himself performed a sacrifice in order to clothe Adam and Eve. Why did he do that? Leviticus 17 verse 11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Again, a theological word, atonement. But we see that Christ has atoned for our sins. He has cleansed us of our sins. He has brought us forgiveness of our sins by his blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My teacher, when he would go through these verses, he would put it all under the heading of what are we supposed to do when the deacons pass out the Lord's Supper? In a moment when the deacons pass things out, we're sitting there, Teresa will be playing the piano and it'll be quiet, it'll be somber. And what are we doing while we're waiting on the deacons to get to us and we get the elements? Well, the first thing we do is we give thanks as we've seen that Christ gave thanks. We're to give thanks to him because of his sacrifice on our behalf. The second thing we're to do is to remember. We do this in remembrance of me, Christ says. What kind of remembering are we supposed to be doing? Are we just supposed to mentally draw up in our mind? Oh yeah, I know that Christ died for me. I remember that, yeah. No, it's supposed to be more than that. We're supposed to remember in such a way that it impacts how we live. We see this type of remembering in the great old hymn by Isaac Watts, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. What did Watt say? He said, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gains I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. He looks at the cross and he says, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? He said, Where the whole realm Of nature mine that would be a present far too small love so amazing love so divine it demands my soul it demands my life it demands my all this is the kind of remembering that we're to do that when we reflect back on what christ has done on our behalf there's no way that we could take the lord's supper callously flippantly Because we remember the great love that Christ has poured out for us on our behalf. This is what we're to do. We're to give thanks. We're to remember. But not only that, he keeps going, verse 26, for as often, and we pause there, noting that he doesn't tell us how many times we're supposed to observe the Lord's Supper. He just says, as often as you do it, reminding us that every time that we gather at the Lord's table, it is shaping us. When we do this type of remembering, it's forming those good habits in us that we've talked about as we've studied in the book of Titus. Whereas as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim. What are we doing while the deacons are passing out the Lord's Supper? We're giving thanks, we're remembering, and we're proclaiming. So often we're, we're worried about how should we make the Lord's Supper evangelistic? Excuse me, how should we make the church service evangelistic? And too often people relegate the Lord's Supper to a Sunday night gathering or a Wednesday night gathering because they say on Sunday morning, that's when we're trying to draw people in. On Sunday morning, that's when we want lost people to be here. We don't want to get them bogged down in the Lord's Supper. But Christ tells us that when we observe the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death. It is an evangelistic feast that is someone who is here and you don't know Christ and you're watching what we're doing. You say, I don't know what's happening, but I want to find out. That's what's going on when we observe the Lord's Supper. When we gather at the Lord's table, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You remember those three priorities that we talked about earlier in the year? They all come together. They're all on display at the Lord's table. When we gather at the Lord's table, we're only here because we have communion with God through Jesus Christ. Our first priority is our relationship with God. But secondly, remember our second priority is our relationship with one another as a church. And again, not only do we have communion with God, we have communion with one another. We have fellowship with one another. And our third priority is our relationship with the world, with the lost. And we see here that we're proclaiming the Lord's death even as we gather at the Lord's table. All three priorities on display in the Lord's Supper. And how long are we supposed to do this? Until He comes. There is an end to the Lord's Supper. Christ told His disciples on that night of the last Passover, He told them that there would be a time He would not drink the cup again until the last day, until He returns in glory. And the Bible talks about this in Revelation chapter 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will no longer be remembering the Lord at the Lord's table. We will be gathered at the Lord's table. The great marriage supper because Christ has invited us and Christ has saved us and Christ will come again. And when he does, we will not fellowship just with one another. We will not fellowship just looking at our relationship with God. We will be with God forever. How could we ever take the Lord's Supper lightly? So if we're to give thanks and if we're to remember... We're to proclaim and we're to look forward to eternity. Then we understand that the Lord's Supper is a meaningful memorial, looking back on what Christ has done. It's shaping us even in the present, helping us to walk worthily of the calling with which we have been called. And we're looking forward to the future when Christ will come again and we will be with Christ forever. So, what do we do with all of this? He tells us we should examine ourselves. Before we come to the Lord's table, we examine ourselves. We make sure that we are walking worthy of the calling with which we've been called. This is not an isolated command. Even back in Lamentations chapter 3 verse 40 says, "Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord." 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 says, "Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith." So before we take of the Lord's table, We're going to examine ourselves. Ask yourself, am I walking with Christ? If you say, no, I'm not walking with Christ. I don't know Christ. I have no relationship with him at all. Then today is the day. Repent of your sins and trust Christ as your savior. But if you're walking with Christ, how is your fellowship with Christ? Are you abiding in Christ? If not, you can take your cares and your burdens to Christ. He hears you. He cares for you. How is your relationship with one another? Do you have a, a, a hidden animosity towards someone in the church? Is there someone that you are just uh, angry at, you're bitter toward? You wouldn't know it by looking at you, but deep inside you have hidden sin. You have hidden uh, hatefulness towards someone else in the church. Don't come to the Lord's table. With that inside, make it right. Even now, even during our time of invitation, our time of response, you can go to someone else in the church and and make right your relationship with them so that when we gather, we're properly demonstrating the unity, the fellowship that we have in Christ. We're going to pause for a moment, each praying in our hearts before the Lord, and then I will pray for us on our behalf and we will have our time of response. If there's someone you need to go to, you have that time to do that now. If you need me to pray with you, I would be honored to do that. If you don't know Christ and you want to know more of what it means to trust Christ as your Savior, I would be happy to talk with you about that. But let this song, this hymn of response that we sing, be the true response of our hearts. My Jesus, I love thee, and if ever I've loved thee, Lord Jesus, it is now. Let's pray.